Readings is a series of cultural podcasts by Fondazione Prada, with connections to its editorial activity. Order Amoris by Nadia Fuzzini. The essay by writer and literary critic Nadia Fuzzini developed some of the themes explored in Love Stories, a sentimental survey by Francesco Vezzoli. The project conceived by the artist and presented in 2020 on Fondazione Prada's Instagram account. Through the language of social media, Francesco Vezzoli investigated the collective imagination about feelings, identity and forms of love-desire as they are discussed in the present. Ordo Amoris When speaking of the Occitan word joy, a key term in the vocabulary of Provençal, fin amour, or of jouissance, it is indubitably physical pleasure that is being referred to. But bodily pleasure, regardless of gender, because, as psychoanalysis tells us, the subconscious mind does not recognize differences of gender. Is there perhaps a separate and distinct signifier of the biological reality of the female sex and of its, for example, the woman's pleasure? Or is the phallus not rather the sole sexual symbol whose power both man and woman share? Might the world not be ordered indifferently by phallic semblance for both men and women? The question has dogged us since antiquity, Theresius Dosit. But in the shadow of a universal, patriarchal, and discriminatory order, over the centuries there have been those who, wishing to advance a just right in the idealistic hope of making all subjects equal before the law of pleasure, have attempted to correct the perverse effects of an entirely ideological inconsistency. Claiming a porous, indistinct, and impalpable fluidity of jouissance. Unnameable. On the female side, the hysteric has dedicated, or rather given herself, to this utopian project. At the start of the 20th century, faced with the scandal of The Dark Continent, of which Sigmund Freud spoke with a certain terror, and in full awareness of the radical absence of the positive trait of female identification, the hysteric, such as Dora or Anna O, challenged the law of division into sexual genders, more exactly claiming a lesson in freedom given the absence of her own female inscription in the symbolic order. By renaming the hysteric as the daughter, who does not identify with the image of woman as imposed by the father, a truth will be discovered in her disorder. Yes, of course, with regard to custom and behavior, the father can command this and that. But the truth is that in certain cases, his naming scheme fails. The father does not name. He is unable to proclaim a universal law. In the 20th century, the name of the father began to crumble and it may happen that the paternal plan to permanently separate the daughter from the mother fails. And the daughter returns to the mother and to the female body to find her pleasure there. A different pleasure. A pleasure that deviates from the expected gender grammar. From the fully 20th century woman writer Virginia Woolf, we learned of the extraordinary exploit of someone who turns a handicap into good fortune, who creates freedom out of a rejection, an other and different quality out of a deviation, 
Yes, starting from an existential void. From the realization, that is, that the signifier woman does not exist except as an incomplete state. Starting from that void, any woman not being able to recognize herself fully in the signifier man will have to invent her own way of being a woman, and also in her own way, a man, and to voice her atque ego homo sum. Although without erasing her difference in the neutrality of a universal signifier. And thus, a reversal takes place. From a fault, from a phallus, a deviation, from an error, all of us women, one by one, are pushed to invent loopholes, to find shortcuts, to take, that is, roads that are not the primary ones. Very well, says Virginia Woolf, if woman does not exist except as one of man's ribs, well, if that's how it is, I, woman, embrace this truth, and prophetically announce that starting from this existential void, I will invent my own way of being a woman, and also a man, and I will construct myself as a monstrum, a prodigy. Because there is other, or at least there has been the suspicion since the beginning of time that there is other. Even when it is denied for reasons of convenience, in order to maintain customs and habits and power in compliance with traditions whose renewal is not intended, the shadow, the suspicion of this unspeakable other, remains. For example, the suspicion that there is an extrinsic feminine pleasure. The pleasure of a woman, although, mind you, it is not said that the man does not want and is unable to experience it. For example, Pentheus in the Bacchae attempts to. Pentheus exposes himself to an experience of other jouissance, boldly seeking heterogeneous pleasure. Heterogeneous is a beautiful and expressive word. It alludes to a different nature or quality, to something not homogeneous. And it opens the way to a search for a dimension of joy that encounters absence, the patu. It does so, however, in a way that is not at all sorrowful. Not to mourn the effects, but to celebrate the fact that this is not all there is, that there is something else. A joy that mocks the claim of universality of the phallic order and decries it as a pretension, an illusion, a fiction, as well as a fixation indeed. Furthermore, it invites us to accommodate an idea of the singularity of each being, of each creature, and to think of this as a radically different type of seclusion, of which the female subject, being quintessentially heteros, embodies the possibility when she makes herself the expression of what she has witnessed over the centuries with her existence. That is to say, by circulating discourses of life that are anti-segregative. This is a possible significance of the assertion that there is no such thing as female pleasure that is complementary to its male equivalent, it can be the observation that there is a fault in the symbolic order. And if there are those who do not want to admit this fault, who deny it, recuse it or reject it, if there are those who do not want to, or who cannot sustain the encounter with the emptiness of the semblant, and do not want to know that the phallus is nothing but a semblant, there are also those who inform us that it is a question of enjoying the emptiness. That is the Provençal joy enjoying the nothing that is there, which is everything.
There are, I was saying, daughters who turn to the father, who idealize the father and with him also the man. But even in this case, the experience of stalemate persists in the sense that the paternal law is not the be-all and end-all of the matter. The daughter who turns to the father continues to ask him about the law he commands, but he, the father, or the various incarnations into which this figure is translated, husband, companion, boss, no longer knows how to answer. For there persists a current of libido that escapes the Oedipal law and resists in its attachment to the exclusive bond with the mother. There's a kind of ravage maternel that resists in a phallic world, a bond that is not dispassionate, but in a certain sense indifferent to the difference of the sexes. A pre-Oedipal or post-Oedipal love that dilates into a spectrum of body positions in the domain of love that the acronym LGBTQ plus attempts to list, but how well does it succeed and define? But we know it, don't we? The body is not natural. It is inhabited and eroticized by drives inscribed in the body like an echo of a narrative of the body itself. Sexual power, the body exhibited in the act of enjoying itself, is a pointless fire, a decoy, a trap, an illusion like a toupee which hides baldness. There is indeed a catch, which is one component of the pleasure. In our experience of love, which is the experience of the body's own pleasure, we reach a certain point, a fault, a hapax, a grand finale where the division sign vanishes, and along with the negation, the refusal, the denial of the sexed body and its gender role, we touch on the miracle of a divisive sign, which as such sinks into default mode and the queer body appears. And with it a truth. The body is always queer when it takes pleasure. Anyone who does not come to see and know this miracle in the experience of love, who does not achieve that disintegration of distinctions, does not know Eros. But how can this pleasure be spoken of? Aye, there's the rub, as Hamlet would say. He who declares himself hors du sex, outside sex, as he says to his friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he loves neither women nor men. Like Orestes with Pylades, he loves his friend Horatio with a love hors du sex. The orphan Hamlet knows nothing of physical pleasure, nor does he know how to speak of love, only death. There is a jouissance of the body, but the claim of contravening the grammar of genders, protesting an increase in numbers of the sexes and genders, which leads everyone back to the legality of a list of multiple identities that throng together to find a place for themselves in the collective social discourse, does not serve to speak of this enjoyment, erasing the contravention. Of course, it is important to open the doors of the discourse of love to erotic experiences, as they are exchanged between individuals beyond the traditional grammar of gender division, experiences that, if they are exchanged, need also to be expressed whether in the experience of bodies or in spoken language, because love is also a discourse. We don't just make love, we talk about it. And the horizon of the language in which it is expressed alters, just as the meaning of words alter. It is thus that the horizon of our existences changes, often barely perceptibly each time. Because our existences take shape and meaning with a linguistic universe, 
because meaning is constructed through the constant fluctuations of hints of significance that vibrate in the semantic field contingent on different contiguities and contrasts. There shouldn't be any need to emphasize that love is a subject of discussion, a discourse. Indeed, love lies at the heart of the philosophical discourse. And the history of culture is nothing but the history of the different intonation that certain metaphors take on over time within the philosophical discourse. Talking about love, therefore, means immersing oneself and swimming in the river of a tradition which over the centuries has made love a discourse. It so happens that it was under the sign of love that a profound spiritual and cultural renewal occurred in Europe during the 12th century. It might be said that the 12th century was the century of love, if for no other reason than because it saw the publication of extraordinary texts, such as those by William of Saint-Thierry, On Contemplating God, and On the Nature and Dignity of Love, or the equally fascinating text by Bernard of Clairvaux, On Loving God, or the De Trinitate by Richard of St. Victor, a theologian of Scottish origin whom Dante, in his Paradise, places among the great theologians and doctors of the Church. These are texts that would exert an enormous influence, and not only on churchmen. Yes, the 12th century was unmistakably the century of love, but what love? Now we know that at the dawn of the 12th century, a special kind of love came into being in the courts of Occitania, the finamor, a love enjoyed by ladies and knights founded on deferred, if not denied, pleasure, a pleasure that impediment causes to grow. A love that, either because the lady denies herself or because the lover loves from afar, takes delight in impossibility. So that more than with the beloved in the flesh, it is the phantom of the loved one that the lover grapples with. Naturally, this phantom takes on impossible proportions when the other with whom we are dealing is God. The great other, as he is called, not by Jacques Lacan, but by Emily Dickinson, who, as the great mystic and heretic that she is, also refers to him as the great thief, he who steals her existence. And Emily would certainly agree. The soul itself is an effect of love and grows in the courage to bear the intolerable relationship with the supreme being, whom the philoi, the true lovers, choose, and whose true lovers are hors sex, neither here nor there with regard to sex. Those who have read Emily Dickinson know what I'm talking about. They also know that her poetry feeds on mystical fantasies and is given fervor by vocabulary and imagery not so different from those of the mystical treatises of William, Bernard, and Richard, in which the great other is God. It is God we must love, that we want to love, that we desire. And it is to the love of God that Bernard and William and Richard lead. In their writings, love is wedded to impossibility, because God infinitely transcends every attempt at human embrace. In consequence, the amorous zeal falls back on itself, not inert, however, because increased by its own nostalgia, strengthened by its own ardent torment, acknowledging the exile to which the lover is always condemned, love grows. It grows and wins prestige, especially if it is accompanied by hope and faith. In the sense of love, faith, hope and charity are indissoluble.
It also needs to be said that a few centuries later, there were those who recognized that it is better to marry than to burn in hell, and things changed, at least for some of them. Moreover, St. Paul had already told the Corinthians that each man has his own gift from God. You only need to read the epistle in which he invites his fellow Christians in Corinth not to yield to the temptations of Satan. I wish that all men were as I am, dear brothers, Paul confesses, by which he means chaste, but he realizes that this is too much to ask. But celibacy may expose you to temptation, he admits. So I say to you, if you cannot control yourselves, then marry. God has given you a body, not so that you may deny it, but so you may enjoy it in its indissolubility with the soul. And therefore, the husband performs his duty to his wife, and the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. In this mutual dispossession, in the union of their bodies, both will be able to experience a benefit, a joy, a pleasure that results in the gift of children, in relief from concupiscence, in the comfort of friendship, and given refuge from solitude. The essence of the marriage sacrament instigates this bondage with the explicit thought that it is better to yield to blessed and legitimate desire than to burn in the flames of unfulfilled desire. Because if that were the case, who knows what demons might take possession of that desire? Because, Paul repeats, and which has been variously commented on through the centuries, chastity is a gift, but not all of God's children have the same gift. On the contrary, we all have to recognize that each one of us, the sons and daughters of God, has been given his or her own particular gift by the Father. Nietzsche's Zarathustra would also say this, Brother, if you have a virtue and it is your own virtue, you have it in common with no one. In this way, we each have to serve our own gift, comply with our own virtue. Neither man nor woman should be apprehensive of joy or pleasure. A good husband will make a good wife. A good John, a good Joan, exhorts the marriage preparation manual in the Protestant faith. John and Joan, or Jane, it should be noted, are delicate colloquial allusions to the male and female sexual organs. In his comedies, Shakespeare makes fun with these figures of speech through unsubtle, ribald allusions that he puts into the mouths of clowns and humble characters. Whereas the noble characters dispense metaphors and sublime poetry, because elevated love is sublime. Love is not only carnal. Yes, of course, there is a dangerous enemy when the heart slips down into the groin and the animal appetite of the flesh prevails when some ill-fated people debase themselves to such an extent that they offer their souls as an abode to Satan. Of course, there is also Ovid and Fidus Amor Carnalis. But love is also an energy of the soul, which a natural motion bears upwards. It is necessary to know how to search for beatitude, and if we follow the treatises of William and Bernard and Richard, our search will be oriented towards the Lord. If we refer to Origen, these teachers do not compare carnal love with spiritual love, but underlying their warnings, love is born from God and must return to God. At heart, love is gratitude. It is filial duty. 
How else can we repay our father? For him, the novice can and must lose his senses, and this he will do by means of assiduous and constant prayer, through effort that allows amor to be transmuted into caritatem. Because the aim of the scholar caritatis is the birth of the new man, one who perfectly resembles God. As I was saying, it was during the same years that the great medieval myth of Amour Passion developed in the north of France and other European countries, prompting the extraordinary flowering of the courtly novel centered on the intertwining of chivalry and love, and a broad consideration of the relationship between love and marriage, love and duty, love and religious sentiment. During the same period, Marie de France composed her Lay, poems about women who suffer for love. And in close connection with the universities, the joyful and sensual Latin poetry of the Goliards were spreading. Towards the end of the century, Andrea Capellana would attempt an exemplary synthesis of the conception of love in his treatise De Amore, inspired by Ovid's great models of Ars Amatoria and the Remedia Amoris. During the Middle Ages, the influence of Ovid permeated the whole of erotic and courtly literature. It was within this varied and intense context that a daring, passionate, and stubborn reflection on love developed in Europe. Commentaries dominated by the theme of love, on the Song of Songs, the Bible's erotic book par excellence, understanding of which William and Bernard contributed to in the tradition of Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. They treated the sensual, passionate themes allegorically, and, as if on a great stage, the groom becomes a symbol of Christ, the mystical lover, and the bride the symbol of the church, or of the loving soul. Solomon, who was thought to have been the author of the biblical poem, stands alongside Ovid. Together, they represent the twin pillars, the sensual and the spiritual, of an agon within which a bold metaphorical web is woven. Naturally, Solomon had greater importance than Ovid in monastic literature, while the laurels went to Ovid in secular literature. And of course, the resulting censure was mutual. There is a point in Seminar 20 where Jacques Lacan refers to a certain other, who seemed remarkably like the good old God of all times. And he complains more or less, saying that there are people who do not understand that by introducing the other, put forward at the time of the agency of the letter, as the place of speech was a way, I can't say of laicizing, but of exercising out the good old God. Because, yes, the good old God exists, but how he exists is the point. Bernard and William both know something about it. For example, they know that everything revolves around love, comments Lacan. It is from here that one grasps the essence of what we must call by the name with which it has resonated over the centuries, specifically love, which hauls behind it the entire Platonic and Neoplatonic tradition. Furthermore, Bernard and William also deny any difference in meaning between the verbs eran and agapan, between amare and diligere. Nor is it a coincidence that in the description of the progressive degrees of love given in De diligendo Deo, Bernard begins with amor carnalis, which is the love with which man loves himself, this love is not sinful, nor is it to be stifled or repressed. 
but in the various stages it passes through, it must, let us say, be rough-hewn and refined. This must occur until the fourth degree, when man will love himself for God. What is the relation between the rational knowledge of God and the love of God? Is loving God greater or less than knowing Him? William's answer is that amor ipse intellectus est. This means that since the human intellect is powerless to know God in His essence, it is rather love that enables the transformation of the inner sense of the soul into that intellect of love, the third and highest of the senses which allows us to feel the Creator. Underlying this is the idea derived from Greek philosophy that like knows like, and thus that we are only able to rely on that self-image that God has instilled in our mind and will. In love, we might summarize it as God knowing Himself in us. The marvelous thing about it is that loving knowledge is presented as a tangible experience. The sense of enlightened love savors the sweetness of a something that is loved rather than thought, tasted rather than understood. It is this something that enters into the lover. To the extent that in reality he or she almost seems to see with their own eyes and to feel with their own hands the substance of what might be called the word of life. It is thus that the lover comprehends the presence of God and enjoys and adores him with joy. The intellect of love is superior to the rational intellect and to the ratio fidei. Caritas informs our sight and gives us two powerful eyes, and in a sort of supernatural intensity of the gaze, we see things, meaning that we see things that are not actually there, because love enables us to see further. In love, the eye imagines and invents, and reason, basking in the aura of that affection, gets transformed into a sort of spiritual and divine intellect that transcends and absorbs any obstacle to vision. If ratio is synonymous with scientia, then amor is synonymous with sapientia. And as William adds, sapientia is derived from sapore. The language used by theologians is extraordinary, being paradoxical, oxymoronic, poetic in the highest degree. It overwhelms and enchants. And yet, it does not make me forget, I, who am after all a woman, that these people speaking are men who have voluntarily chosen celibacy to become God's eunuchs, voluntary ascetics who nonetheless do not renounce the discourse of love. On the contrary, it happens that the strength of love grows and grows, and the language becomes garlanded with extraordinary images, and inspired by such images, the lover speaks of apples and pomegranates, and of the absent spouse, and of presence and memory, overcoming every order of gender difference, because those who seek love using this language accept femininity as a generous, rich condition, the only one that triumphs in love. And a strange pleasure is evoked, erotic, carnal, and spiritual all at once, mystical. It is not by chance that on the French cover of Seminar 20, published by Seuil in 1975, Lacan chose to show Bernini's statue of St. Teresa, 
And in chapter 6, for those wishing to understand divine love and mystical jouissance, he recommends that they travel to Rome and visit the church of Santa Maria della Vittoria to contemplate the statue of the saint. Look at her, he exhorts us, and you will see that she jouit. And there is no doubt about it, she certainly is. What exactly is she taking pleasure in? It is what the mystics, both male and female, enjoy. That is, the language they invent to woo the great other. Until last century, that is, until Charcot and Freud, it would have been said that such passion was a matter of repressed libidinal energy, which in Teresa's case was even displayed in marble. Because in love, Lacan reiterates, it is not only questions of fucking, screwing, shagging, having sex, there is more. In this act, there is a real passage to existence, a passage into that ex, into that outside, which is also the prefix to the word ecstasis. It is here that we encounter the great other. This is what male and female mystics and poets, pretty much all those who do not make love either by choice or vocation, talk about. And also all those who, in order to make love, rave on about. And so, inevitably, the question arises. Is there or is there not a love, a fully imminent jouissance, without a great other, an other tiny love, total and alone and entirely human? Is sexual love all there is? Is there carnal love, the fetid, impure one? And if there is, is it perverse? Is it sick? Is it obscene? Lawrence comes to mind. D.H. Lawrence and his forbidden and censored novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, declared pornographic and obscene. In another version, Lawrence named the same book with the elusive title of John Thomas and Lady Jane. John and Jane being in his language the nicknames for the female and male genitalia. For D.H. Lawrence, John and Jane exist intensely Contrary to Jacques Lacan, who doubted that even sexual intercourse may be, for Lawrence that is all there is that allows us to experience life. For that, and that only, life is worth living. Yes, that is what Lawrence thinks, and very strongly wants to believe. There is only sex, and jouissance is there in the organ. Organic jouissance exists for those who know how to achieve it. As we have seen, Lacan doubts this, even if from 1955 until the year of his death in 1981, he held Courbet's painting, The Origin of the World, very dear to him. More than a painting, this work is an icon, a host, a chronicle of how and how much in the troubled meshing of repulsion and attraction the female sex is disquieting. It must be said, however, that in Lacan's country house in Guitrancourt, his wife Sylvie, Bataille's ex-wife, tended to keep it concealed. As though it would be possible to hide the libertine instance that binds Lacan to Bataille. However, for Lawrence the Innocent, there is no amour, no more. No poetry of absence, no sublimation of distance. No Plato, no province, no troubadours, no ladies. For him, love is the apotheosis of closeness and contact. 
Love is carnal. The flesh burns and its heat spreads to the brain. And a man and a woman enjoy sex. They merge until two become one in orgasm. Lawrence goes into detail to the point of describing the most sublime, the most sublimely phallic moment when the penis occupies the anal orifice. There, reincarnating itself as a powerful phallus, the penis celebrates its greatest victory by contending with the excremental aspect of a sexual geography, where the genital penetrates the scatological place par excellence and purifies it. Thus, pleasure will triumph over shame, the sublime over the obscene, the pure and the noble over the abject, and life over death. And thus the phallus will triumph in all its beauty as symbol and agent of comfort, reconciliation, and rebirth. The anal intercourse in the Lady Chatterley trial was the crucial episode that led to the novel being censored. The accusation of obscenity and pornography revolved around this episode. It was unthinkable that anal intercourse could be described or even suggested, since in Great Britain at the time, the act was forbidden even to a married and consenting couple. Unacceptable. A crime. But for Lawrence, it is precisely in that act, an ensuing orgasmic spasm, that the triumph of the phallus is celebrated. Its purest significance, its transcendent aspect, is the triumph of Eros as the approval of life up to and including death, as Bataille would have said. Eros is the powerful god who would expediently, and is for that madly adored, allow all us common mortals of both sexes, homosexual men, sapphic women, transgender or cisgender or ultras, to defeat the fear of death in his reinvigoration of freedom. Can death be enjoyed? Yes, it can, promises Bataille, reviving the game of love in the form of a libertine idea of dying, and therefore in the act in which pleasure culminates, thereby extinguishing the fear of death. When precisely man and woman come together, die together, the horror of death dies. This is the ultimate aspiration of Antony and Cleopatra, do you remember? Plutarch tells us, and Shakespeare takes it up again, having been attracted by the plan of the two lovers who intended to create between them the community of Sinapotanumenoi, those who die together. At a certain point in their relationship, Antony and Cleopatra create a fellowship together. Plutarch calls it a synod, a word that serves to indicate the conjunction of the stars, while in Aristotle it even signifies the conjunction of matter and form. The pair call this synod the society of inimitable livers. That is to say, the two lovers declare themselves to be amimetobioi. As for how they live, there is no one like them. They are inimitable. If during their banquets Antony and Cleopatra once experienced joy as inimitables, if their goal is to enjoy life to the fullest, at a certain point, jumping to near the end of the tragedy, their company changes its mission. They dedicate their secret society to death. Now they seek the satisfaction of spasmodic, profound physical joy, when the heart of death opens inside the body and the body discovers an unbearable joy, delight, incomparable enjoyment, and fully experiences the taste of life. From the small death represented by jouissance, they plan to move to the next stage and achieve the triumphal ending of a death 
that does not cause fear but instead gives pleasure. They will pass from savoir vivre to savoir mourir. They will change the name of their fellowship or association to sinapotanumenoi. Theirs will be the community of those who wish to die together, the secret sect of those who want to die with the other, never without the other could be their slogan. As an association, it is certainly not inferior in luxury, extravagance, or magnificence to the former version, that of the Amimetobioi. Indeed, carefully and expertly, Cleopatra courts death. Plutarch recalls how, between one dinner or banquet and another, the Egyptian queen used to collect the most extraordinary variety of deadly poisons. She experimented with plant and animal venoms, testing them on poor Christians condemned to death. She observed how and how quickly the poison works, and how much pain it causes. She learned that slower poisons cause less pain, but that they draw out the punishment. Whereas the most immediate poisons cause spasms, but that when simply witnessing them at work, heart and courage failed. She tried and tried again. Each day Cleopatra would work with constancy, precision, and patience, though this went against her nature. Until one day she discovered a rare and tiny viper whose habitat is a special desert, and whose venom includes a gentle stupor, a sweet sleep without spasms or moans. The body perspires delicately, and a light veil of sweat appears on the face as slowly and inexorably the senses fade away, and every attempt to return the sufferer to life is deemed a failure. The sleeper never awakens. This would be a fine way to die for the snake of the Nile, as Antony calls his Cleo. To choose to die together, to embrace death without fear and enjoy it, this is the dissolute idea of death. But the two lovers did not succeed in this sublime jouissance. The two lovers die alone and at different times, not permitting them to sublime jouissance of the mutual orgasm. They did, however, give us, the readers, the huge pleasure of feeling ourselves wrapped in une langue that truly and how intensely gives us pleasure. Encore et encore. You have just listened to Readings, an audio anthology made of critical essays, texts, and short novels commissioned by Fondazione Prada for its multidisciplinary projects. Thanks to the author for granting the permission to read the text and to Frederick Sanchez for providing the soundscape. <laughs>